ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. The worlds of engineering and biology are discovering new points of intersection and at all points in one direction design. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson. Today on ID the Future, we hear Brian Miller, research coordinator for the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture who holds a B.S. in physics with a minor in engineering from MIT and a Ph.D. in physics from Duke University. And he gave this message at the Dallas Conference on Science and Faith, sponsored by the Discovery Institute, in November 2021. What you're finding is that the underlying assumptions of biology are radically changing. All of the major predictions of evolutionary theory are proven false, while the predictions of intelligent design have been proven true. Now, they still will pay lip service to, uh, let's say, evolution, but in practice, what they're doing is essentially a design-based model for biology. And that's what I'm going to talk about. Uh, thank you. It's, it's really such a pleasure to speak for you on really my favorite topic, which is the ev- evidence for a creator in nature from science. And what I'm going to present to you today will be uh, information that's very fresh. Like, we just recently had a conference on engineering and biology, and I've done more research on the topic. So this is very cutting-edge science. I'm very excited to present it to you. Um, but before I talk about the question of how how does engineering relate to biology, I need to give a little bit of historical context for the whole conversation. Because there was the perspective by many that the debate about whether there's design in nature, whether there's design in life, versus life is simply a product of natural processes, is not a recent debate. It actually goes back to about the fifth century BC. Because what you have is the philosophers in Greek we're asking these very same questions about the fundamental understanding of reality. So philosophers like Democritus had promoted um, a a philosophy called atomism, which is really uh, the ancient version of scientific materialism. And their philosophy was the idea that if you look at nature, everything we see is simply a product of natural processes. They believed there were these eternal atoms that would be bouncing around, and they interrelated according to certain rules, what we would call natural laws today. And the interaction of these uh, atoms, chance and time, explained everything from the appearance of rocks to philosophers that thought about rocks. And of course, uh, that perspective was uh, in direct contrast to people like Plato and Aristotle, because those philosophers believed that the natural processes could not explain all the design we see in nature. They believe that there was a transcendent mind, what Plato called the Demiurge. And this mind envisioned things like animals. And then what happened is those animals came into existence not purely through natural processes, but from a blueprint by that mind that shaped matter into that final form. So again, it was basically an ancient version of the design versus evolution debate that you see today. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he talked about this issue in the book of Romans, he talked about how when you look at nature, the evidence of God's hand, his invisible qualities, his creative power were manifest in nature, they were self-evident, but people suppressed the truth. 
And the people that um, Paul was affirming were the ancestors of like Plato and Aristotle, people like the Stoics. And he was critiquing uh, the Epicureans who were the descendants of Democritus. There again were the scientific materialists of their day who argued that a primitive version of natural selection and natural processes could explain the appearance of design in life. So again, this is a very ancient debate. And of course, in more modern times, you have uh, natural philosophers like William Paley. And again, he had the famous watch argument, where he said, when you look at um, objects that are human creations, like watches, you can tell they're designed because you have many carefully crafted parts that are put together for a purpose. And when you look at life, you see that same appearance of design, which points to a designer. And of course, that changed with Charles Darwin. And Darwin argued that when you look at life, you may see what looks like design, but really it's simply a product of natural processes, like natural selection. So what he did was he used natural selection in nature as a designer substitute. He said that nature could act like a designer in creating things that look design. And, and here is sort of a, a famous quote. Um, where Francisco Ayala, who is the past president of the AAS, said it was Darwin's greatest accomplishment to show that the directive organization of living beings can be explained as the result of a natural process, natural selection, without any need to resort to a creator or other external agent. So that was the major shift that took place. And of course, Darwin argued that when you look at similarities in nature, that points to an evolutionary tree or a tree of life where you have a cell that formed um, in the past and then that cell became more complex. It, um, it uh, split into different branches of the tree of life and that's how you get animals and plants and fungi. And again, so all the similarities in nature are explained by common ancestry. And that was sort of the Darwinian narrative. Now, if you follow Discovery Institute, we have written a lot about how that narrative is collapsing how there is increasing amounts of, of evidence that challenge that, that standard evolutionary model. And of course, uh, some of the main evidence would be from the fossil record, that when you look at, the, um, at, at dead organisms that left fossils, what you find is not a picture of gradual evolution, but things appear suddenly. And of course, one of the most famous examples is the Cambrian explosion, where what you see is the first representatives of the major animal types we see today. The first time you see anything like an arthropod or a fish or whatever, it appears suddenly in the fossil record and it never changes. And what you have is a consistent picture in the fossil record that things appear suddenly, any new organism appears without precursors and then it doesn't change. That's sort of the picture you see. And um, there's other evidence, uh, things like mutation studies, uh, timescale studies. <clears throat> and what happened is these challenges led to uh, a meeting in London. It was called the Royal Society Meeting of New Trends in Evolutionary Biology. And these uh, evolutionary theorists came together recognizing and stating that the standard evolutionary model cannot explain the large-scale transformations you see in nature. Like, it can't explain the origin of something truly unique, like the first trilobite or the first mammal. Uh, in, the, in the conference, they were looking at lots of alternative explanations, like things beyond natural selection, like phenotypic plasticity and, and um, niche construction and so forth. But there was not one piece of evidence presented that any of these extensions could explain the truly challenging questions of life. Now, that's all interesting, 
But my talk is going to basically go beyond that, because I want to talk about how there's been a revolution in biology taking place, particularly in the field of systems biology, where engineers have started to work with biologists to understand life. And what's happened is as engineers have brought their expertise to the discussion, what you're finding is that the underlying assumptions of biology are radically changing. In fact, what's happened is they've come to realize that all of the major predictions of evolutionary theory are proven false, while the predictions of intelligent design have been proven true. So what you see is the underlying assumptions of that field are shifting from evolutionary perspective to a perspective of design. Now, they still will pay lip service to, uh, let's say, evolution, but in practice, what they're doing is essentially a design-based uh, model for biology. And that's what I'm going to talk about. So to begin, I'll talk about what are those assumptions. Well, when you look at these changing assumptions, oops, excuse me. Uh, when you look at these changing assumptions, one of the core assumptions of evolution or of scientific materialism in general is that there is no true evidence of design. It's, it's simply a product of natural processes. So if you try to look for design in nature, that'll mislead you. And in fact, one author that talked about this very eloquently is John Rees. In his book, Not by Design, he states this. Uh, Life is not designed, or at least it shows no evidence of design for anything other than continued existence, which needs no designer. To truly retire the watchmaker, we must admit that there is not only not design, but not indeed even apparent design in the biological world, in the sense of entities doing any more than they need to do to continue to exist. Now, the philosophical term for design is teleology, or purpose. And what used to be the case is biologists were forbidden to appeal to teleology. They said there is no purpose, everything is just a product of natural processes. Um, that was a fundamental assumption. Now, a second fundamental assumption, which was uh, also related to that, or a prediction, was the idea that we should see suboptimal or non-functional structures in nature. In other words, we shouldn't see ideal design, but poor design, clumsy design. And, and this was um, uh, this is a uh, author, Philip Kitcher, who made that point in his book, um, uh, Living with Darwin. He said, if you were a talented engineer designing a whale from scratch, you probably wouldn't think of equipping it with a rudimentary pelvis. If you were designing a human body, you could surely improve on the knee. If you were designing the genomes of organisms, you would certainly not fill them with junk. Now, another author that made this point very clearly was also Nathan Lentz. And he wrote a book on human errors, like poor design in the human body. He stated, uh, we have retinas that face backwards, the stump of a tail, and way too many bones in our wrists. We have nerves that make bizarre paths, muscles that attach to nothing, and lymph nodes that do more harm than good. Our genomes are filled with genes that don't work, chromosomes that break, and viral carcasses from past infections. The third category features those human defects that are due to nothing more than the limits of evolution. All species are stuck with the bodies they have, and they have, can advance only through the tiniest changes, which occur randomly and rarely. We inherited structures that are horrendously inefficient but impossible to change. This is why our throats convey both food and air through the same tiny space, and why our ankles have seven pointless bones sloshing around. Fixing either of these poor designs would require much more than one-at-a-time mutations could ever accomplish. To suppose that, there, that these living things were separately created is to view the creative intelligence as whimsical, 
bungling a mediocre engineer and intelligent unintelligent designer. And of course, examples would be the backwards wiring of the eye. Because one thing interesting about the human eye is that the photoreceptors do not face the light. They actually face backwards. So light has to go through neurons and other structures to hit the photoreceptors. And Nathan Lenz would say that is really a dumb design. Who would do that? Of course, you may have heard of the panda's thumb. Uh, the panda's thumb is actually um, a, a, a wrist bone extension, which is very different from other thumbs. And people like Stephen Jay Gould said that's really a crazy design. No one would do it. Another example uh, from more biochemistry is photosynthesis. So these authors stated, plants are less efficient at capturing the energy in sunlight than solar cells, mostly because they have too much evolutionary baggage. So these poor plants have a really mo mediocre system to capture sunlight, all because they have all this evolutionary baggage. That's the basic thesis. And of course, this, th this idea that life is suboptimal is not just sort of an intuitive perspective, but you can show it rigorously in, in mathematical and computational models, like this particular paper for bio from complexity, where if you have an evolutionary process that increases complexity, you must have a lot of non-functional DNA and structures, and, they, and you must have a lot of things that are very suboptimal and poorly designed. So this is very much uh, a, a prediction of evolution. Now, um, a third prediction, which is related, is that biology should not look like human engineering. And the reason for that is uh, biology, if it's evolutionary produced, you have a situation where you have lots of these little structures, and a complex machine is simply these little structures that came together randomly and haphazardly that one day serendipitously did something new. But because it was all by chance, each individual piece was not designed for a purpose. So it looks like what's called a Rube Goldberg machine. Now, Rube Goldberg was an inventor, and he created these very peculiar machines where you took um, different objects like a clock, like a spoon, like a parrot, that weren't designed to work together, but you kind of string them together in an artificial way, and then you can do something like produce a napkin that wipes your face automatically. That's a Rube Goldberg design. And that's what evolution should produce, these clumsy, suboptimal uh, compilations of different structures. And, and this is something that Jerry Coyne, who is an evolutionary biologist, made very clear. In one of his uh, critiques of Michael Behe, he said, indeed, the uniform experience of scientists who work on these systems is that they embody an absurd Rube Goldberg-like complexity that makes no sense as the handiwork of an engineer but makes perfect sense as a product of a long and unguided historical process. So again, those were the fundamental assumptions of evolution or predictions. You should, see, um, you should see objects that weren't designed, so assuming design will mislead you, they should be suboptimal or non-functional, and they should not look like human engineering. They should be sort of this bottom-up Rube Goldberg clung-together design. What's happened is, as engineers have worked with biologists, they've realized that all these assumptions are completely false. And that's created an enormous shift. And one book that talks about this really well is System Modeling and Cellular Biology. And this was produced at the, uh, by, uh, from MIT Press. And here's some quotes, one quote from it that I really, really like. And what these authors state is a hope for understanding complexity in biology then organized 
is to uncover operational principles through a calculus of purpose by asking teleological questions, such as why cellular networks are as observed given their known or assumed function. So now they realize that you actually have to assume design to make progress in understanding biological systems. You have to use a calculus of purpose. You have to look at what, what was their purpose to understand them at a proper level. In fact, you'll also see authors talk about how you have to apply design theory to biology to understand it. Design theory, that's what they literally say. Or they'll say you have to use design explanations. Now, these authors may not believe in a creator, so they may not assume design is real philosophically, but they know they have to assume life is designed to make progress in understanding it, which is really a remarkable shift. Now, another shift is that biologists are realizing that, that life is highly optimized. It shows the best design possible. And here's a really nice paper that summarizes that. And it says Sutherland claims that these optimality principles allow biology to move from merely explaining patterns or mechanisms to being able to make predictions from first principles. Balick, who's at Princeton, makes the important point that optimality hypothesis should not be adopted because of aesthetic reasons, but as an approach that can be directly tested through quantitative experiments. Mathematical optimization could therefore be regarded as a fundamental research tool in bioinformatics and computational systems biology. So in other words, what they realize, if you assume that life is optimally designed, you can predict how it works. You can predict patterns that you find. So it's essentially a design-based assumption. Now, um, I remember I told you about how people argued that things like the photoreceptors and the pandas thumb were poorly designed. Well, what's consistently happened, as engineers have worked with biologists, or biologists have actually looked at these systems more carefully, they realized that what they once thought was poorly designed, they now know is optimally designed. Like photoreceptors have to face backwards because photoreceptors are constantly shedding the, the cones. If they face forward, they would block the vision from all the shedding. So they have to face backwards so that they can be reabsorbed in the tissue. And they also need the cooling from the blood. In addition, photoreceptors have fiber optic cables. There's actually cells that act like fiber optic cables that actually take the light directly to the photoreceptors in the retina. So again, you're seeing exquisite optimal design. The same thing is true with the panda's thumb. When people have looked at it more carefully, they realize the panda's thumb is ideally designed to eat things like bamboo. So for its particular habitat, it's optimally designed. Uh, and of course, I mentioned photoreceptors. And more recently, uh, this is actually 2020, as uh, researchers looked at photoreceptors, they realized that the assumption of poor design was because people were only looking at one variable, like the efficiency of absorbing sunlight. But when you look at multiple variables, like reducing noise, like uh, absorbing carbon from the atmosphere, that photoreception is actually optimally designed when you look at all of the um, objectives that it has to meet. So again, that's an example of what I would call the imperfection of the gaps arguments. When people first look at life, they might think something is poorly designed, but as our scientific knowledge advances, they always realize, they consistently realize that it's actually optimally designed. Um, and of course, remember I, I, uh, when you read Nathan Lenz's, he critiques the, the ankles and the wrists as containing lots of useless bones? Nonsense. 
when engineers look at the design of our limbs, they realize they're exquisitely and optimally designed. That's a really key point. And when people like, um, like Jerry Coyne say that there's absurd Rube Goldberg type design in biology, they never give you examples because it doesn't exist. It's completely untrue. And it's disappointing how often uh, people are allowed to misrepresent the science to the public so long as they're trying to suppress the evidence for design. It's very disappointing. Um, but the evidence is going the other way. And of course, one of the most significant examples is the ENCODE project. Because in the 1980s and earlier, people believed that like 97% of the human genome was non-functional because it had to be according to evolutionary theory. And now they found that it's actually functional. That add, the more they study it, the more what they used to think is junk DNA, things like pseudogenes and retroviral elements, uh, endogenous retroviruses, or things like um, lines and signs, they realize are actually functional and essential elements in gene regulation. And again, so much of the human genome is now known to be functional that you have biologists that are saying that if ENCODE is true, evolution must be false. So again, all these assumptions are shifting. And of course, one of the most significant is what happens is as engineers look at biology, they recognize that the very same design logic used in human engineering is used in life. And it's even our best design. And going back to the book by the system modeling authors, they say, from engineering, it is known that feedback control plus feed-forward control, enabled by fast and, if possible, remote advanced warning sensing, is the most powerful mechanism for providing robustness to fluctuations in the environment and the component parts. The heat shock response in E. coli appears to employ exactly the same principles. So the very, very best, most efficient design logic we use is what we see in life, except life does it better and more efficiently and more advanced. And of course, another beautiful paper by Gregory Reeves and Curtis Hershuk is uh, a survey of engineering models and systems biology. And here's what they say. As a discipline, systems biology shares many character characteristics with engineering. In this paper, we identify the cell as an embedded computing system and as such demonstrate that systems biology shares many aspects in common with computer systems engineering, electrical engineering, and chemical engineering. In fact, what they do is they look at the different components of an embedded computing system and they compare it with the structures in life that do the same functions. Everything from uh, processing engines to information codes to primary memory, um, things like um, a low-level memory layout, high-level data formatting, and the list goes on. So what you find is not only do you see the same functions and the same structures or the, the same operations in life as in human engineering, but the same logical connections, the same logical layout, the same, the same big picture design, which is really striking. And, and this is really significant, because remember I talked about how there is that debate in the, in the fifth century BC between the scientific materialists that said everything was the product of blind chance <clears throat> versus like Plato and Aristotle that said it was from a mind. Engineering points to a mind because what you have are blueprints, what's called top-down design, where a mind planned all these uh, structures in advance to fit together where every system fits perfectly with every other system, 
Every component was designed to fit with every other component in symphonic harmony. That's called top-down design, which is what you see in life. It's very much this platonic idea of a mind. And of course, um, this has created uh, some tension in the biological community. What the systems modeling authors state is an often noted reservation against the type of analogies between biological and engineered systems we brought forward states that these two types of complex systems arise in fundamentally different ways, namely through evolution versus purpose-driven top-down design. So again, what you're seeing is the return of this idea of design that goes back to the ancient Greeks where a mind is creating blueprints that are imposed upon matter. Now, um, what's really interesting though is people will say, okay, fine, maybe there's design in life or it looks like design, but it's very different. Like biology is very, very different from human engineering, and it is. But every way that biology differs from human engineering, it's better, it's more efficient, it's more complex, and is more ingenious. And this is a point that the authors make. Um, we adopted a high-level view of cellular systems by combining biology and engineering approaches. This perspective does not want to disguise large differences between the two types of systems. In fact, biology often shows a more remarkable design than technology. So there's even stronger evidence of design in biology than in human engineering. Now, what's happened is, uh, again, this radical shift is taking place, and they even call it a revolution. Um, but there's still some baggage that they carry. There's still evolutionary assumptions that's slowing their progress occasionally. So we want to help them out. So what you see is a shift in the relationship between intelligent design proponents and the mainstream scientific establishment. Because before, it was more tension, because we had such different assumptions. One side assumed it was chance, it was suboptimal. The other side assumed it was designed and more top-down design. But now, as the assumptions are shifting from more of this evolutionary perspective, from a design perspective, what's happening is the relationship is much more of a cooperation, because now design proponents can work with systems biologists to help advance the field. And we can do it even better because we know it's designed, so we can bring even more engineering principles to bear in understanding biology. And we had a conference on engineering and living systems where we brought together biologists and engineers to help, uh, help advance this research project. And some of those participants are actually in the room today. And what happened is we started research projects to help bring engineering into biology to an even greater extent than what's already happened. And uh, one of the uh, speakers at our conference talked about what's called the operational gravity well for adaptation and variation. And what's happened is uh, you see that the idea of natural selection has created a lot of problems in biology. And just to kind of explain it to you, what you see is that the model of adaptation was based on what's called a fitness landscape. And the idea is that you have kind of this terrain where every place in the terrain represents uh, some different species um, or different uh, subpopulations within a species. So the number one could represent, let's say, finches with large beaks. And the number two could be finches with small beaks. And or if you look at it at a broader level, one could be fish and then you could have two would be amphibians. So the idea is that you have some variation of population and that variation increases with time 
with mutations or, or uh, horizontal gene transfer, whatever. And as the variation increases, then the population can travel across this fitness landscape where uphill represents greater fitness or greater probability of survival. And this small changes over short periods of time can extrapolate over long periods of time to create really large-scale changes. That's a standard evolutionary picture of adaptation. But there's a better model that we proposed. And the idea is that when you look at living systems, they're based on a design logic, a very clear design logic. That we may not fully understand it because we just don't have the technology. Um, but a lot of that design logic is fixed. So if you look at the bone structure of an order of birds like ostriches, you have a certain number, a certain bone structure, they interconnect in a certain way, there's certain organs. And what happens is that is fixed. At a certain point in the life cycle, that's fixed, it does not change. But this design logic um, allows certain parameters to change. So if you look at finches, every finch has a beak, which is the same basic structure, but some beaks are thicker, some are thinner, some are longer, some are sharper. So you have parameters in this design logic that are flexible. Like if you're an engineer, you'll design a car, and that car you know will have four wheels, it'll have an axle, it'll have a steering wheel, but you have variation and you can move the seats up, you can move the seats back, it's sort of the same way. So it's described as an operational gravity well where the bottom of the well represents the optimal conditions, and that's where it's highly efficient. But what happens is as the environmental conditions change, you have parameters that can, that can adjust to meet the conditions, but they're limited. A finch beak can only become so thick or so thin or so sharp. And what happens, if you go beyond that limit, you get failure and the system collapses, and that's why organisms can go extinct. Now, the variation in parameters is not because of the environment. The environment isn't dictating how an organism can adapt at a large-scale level. The environment determines which parameters or what values are best for that particular environment. But the range of parameters is based on the engineering logic. And what you find is this basic approach is affirmed by the academic literature. And you're seeing lots of literature that affirm this basic logic. And here's a, a wonderful paper. It's on labrid fishes. And when you read this paper, what they did is they studied the jaws in fishes. And let me just show you what they said. They say engineering models were developed to analyze the biomechanics of feeding in labrids as a system of levers and linkages that transmits the forces of contracting muscles to the jaws. This is a four-bar linkage, an engineering design that is used in bolt cutters, typewriter keys, heavy construction equipment, and many other human engineering machines that precisely transfer force or motion. So in other words, what they did was they looked at these jaws from an engineering perspective, and they saw the very same design logic or motifs that we use in these jaws. It's called a four-bar linkage. And this four-bar linkage is basically four bones with four hinges that allow for the very precise transfer of forces. And uh, what you find is they look at these different fishes and they find different versions of these four-bar linkages. In fact, some may have more bones, a different design logic. And what they said about this was really, really amazing. They said skull mechanisms, such as levers and linkages, are subject to physical constraints, which may only be broken when a fundamentally new engineering system for feeding arises. 
the macroevolutionary history of labyrinth fishes on global reefs has involved species divergence and skull structure within a range of mechanically feasible forms, creating an unparalleled higher level pattern of convergence that is punctuated, occasionally punctuated by major transitions in engineering design. Okay, let me help you see past the techno babble, okay? Don't worry about the technical language. What they're saying is that these engineering designs, these jaws, cannot change because they have to operate within tight constraints. If you want a new design, you've got to replace it. You remove the old design and you put in the new design. It can't happen gradually because if you try to gradually change this design, it'll stop working long before you can implement a new design. What they also say in the fossil record, every time a new design logic appears, it appears suddenly, without precursors, without transitions going back to an old design. And you see the same design appear multiple times independently. Now, this is really striking. Because again, when you look at the fossil record, this is not unique. Every time anything new appears, any new design logic, it always appears suddenly. And once it appears, it does not change, except for those very slight variations in the adjustable parameters. And again, here's what's key. Remember, evolution assumes that similarity is because of common ancestry. Well, in reality, what you're seeing is similar features appear in radically different organisms that aren't related according to an evolutionary tree. Why is that? because engineers use the same designs for the same purpose. You see the same four-bar linkages in human engineering because it's a useful design logic that you use in a lot of different ways. Why do organisms have eyes that are not closely related? Like octopuses have eyes, like human eyes, but that's not because we share eight-legged ancestors. It's because an engineer, the mind of a creator, knew that eyes were really good for seeing, so he put eyes in very different creatures because they want, he wanted them to see. So again, the pattern of similarities in nature does not fit an evolutionary model. It's not consistent with a tree. It's showing the mind of an engineer using similar designs for similar purposes. And that just sort of is, is this idea. And there's a great paper by Winston Ewart, um, The Dependency Graph of Life, that goes into more detail about this idea. Uh, now, another speaker at our conference talked about what's called a tracking model for adaptation. And this was really key, because the idea of natural selection has created lots of confusion in the biological community about adaptation. And to understand that, I want to use an analogy. Um, have you ever seen these pictures where there's a hurricane that goes into like a city, and it wipes out a lot of houses, but there's like one house that survives? This is a picture, I think, from Hurricane Ike in Texas. There's another example in Florida from Katrina, or another hurricane, that is. Now, when you read the news about these houses that survive, have any of you heard a news article, nature selected this house to survive? It's just sort of natural selection where this house survived, and nature selected against these houses to survive. Have you ever seen an article like that? It makes no sense. It's about the design of the house. Some houses are better designed, so they survive, and some houses are more poorly designed, so they don't survive. It's all about the design of the house. In the same way, what Darwin did, which wasn't good, was he took the adaptation logic from internal to external. 
Like people before realized that organisms adapt because they were designed to adapt. But what he did, we said, well, adaptation is external. Nature molds, nature selects, nature informs. So it was using nature as a creator substitute. But in fact, the scientific evidence points to a much, much better model based on human tracking systems. And one of the speakers talked about this. So if you look at, let's say, um, Uber cars that are self-driving, I'm not sure if I would use one now, but one day maybe. Well, what happens is they have a tracking system built in where they monitor the environment, they have sensors that then take that information and they analyze it and then make decisions based on what they observe. And here's sort of the basic logic. You have sensors that are always monitoring the environment. You've got logic-based logic analyzers that take the information and figure out when certain criteria are met then they say signal, send signals to what are called actuators or implementers that have pre-programmed or pre-engineered responses to the environmental condition. That's how these tracking models work. And what you find is that's what happens in life. Because there's a, there's a torrent of literature coming out in the last few decades that adaptation is not entirely from random mutations, but it's from engineered responses in organisms. And one of the examples of that is what's called natural genetic engineering. And a leader of the field is a, is a man named James Shapiro. And he said, like all classes of cellular biochemistry, natural genetic engineering, DNA transport, and restructuring functions are subject to control by regulatory circuits and respond to changing conditions. NG, NGE activities typically affect multiple characters of a variant cell and organism. Consequently, major phenotypic transformations can occur in a single evolutionary episode and are not restricted to gradual accumulation of numerous slight modifications. So what he's saying is that genetic changes are not random, but there's engineered systems in DNA in life that target genetic changes that produce pre-programmed responses that can help an organism. It's often called, called the harnessing of stochasticity. Now, another example is phenotypic plasticity. And a leader of that is Ralph Sommer. He says, plasticity requires developmental reprogramming in the form of developmental switches that can incorporate environmental information. However, the associated molecular mechanisms are complicated, involving complex loci, such as EUD1, that function as switches and GRNs. While still early, it is likely that the switching genes point to a general principle of plasticity because other examples of plasticity also invoke complex switching mechanisms. Same thing. What you have is just like natural genetic engineering. Organisms have sensors. They monitor the environment. They then have, pre have logic-based analyzers to determine when conditions are met. Then they have pre-programmed responses to respond to the environment in a specific way. And what you find is a torrent of literature about this. Like here's, here's a paper about how beetles, when they're in the, when they're in the um, presence of army ants, transform their anatomy to look like army ants. They change their smell to smell like army ants. They change their mannerism to look like army ants. It's not random mutations, it's pre-programmed adaptation. You see the same thing in fruit flies. Um, you see the same thing in cichlid fishes. You see the same thing in stickleback fishes. Um, even cavefish, like I'll just mention cavefish. What I used to think was an absolute win for microevolution was cavefish, right? You have this fish, it swims into a cave, random mutations knock out its eyes, right? Makes sense. 
Not the case entirely. What you find is when you raise cavefish in water with low conductivity, um, there's a sensor that senses the conductivity of the water, and if it's like cave water, it sends a signal to development to shut down the production of eyes because that leaves more room for other senses. You can uh, raise these fish with more turbulent water, you can uh, raise them in different light conditions, and the bodies respond to those physical conditions in ways that are unique to cavefish. Same thing with cichlid fish. You can uh, feed cichlid fish different food, and that creates different jaw structures. It creates different body structures. And the variation you see in the wild is not from random mutations, but from these pre-programmed responses that were engineered to adapt to the environment. And this all leads to um, a really amazing paper that Steve Meyer uh, talked about, which is called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. I want to write a paper called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Engineering in the Biological Sciences. Because what you see is that God created the universe so that certain engineering principles work. And that's why you see the same engineering principles in human engineering as you see in life. It points to design at such a clear level, so unambiguously that to deny it, as Apostle Paul would say, you have to suppress the truth. Thank you. That was Brian Miller, Research Coordinator for the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute, speaking at the November 2021 Dallas Conference on Science and Faith on the growing evidence for design and life revealed through excellent engineering found throughout the world of biology. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.